Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Dr. May Darwich. May is lecturer in the International Relations of the Middle East at the Department of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham. I've known May for about six or seven years now, and it's been really exciting to, to engage with her on a number of things in her work on on the Middle East, on Saudi Arabia, on on Syria, on Hezbollah, on securitization. And I'm really looking forward to talking through all of these these aspects, but in particular, her wonderful new book, Threats and Alliances in the Middle East, Saudi and Syrian Policies in a Turbulent Region, which came out with Cambridge University Press in late 2019. May, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Simon, and thank you for inviting me to talk on this podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this, May. So, um, yeah, can we start with, with the question that I normally start with, which is how did you get interested in, in working on the politics of, of the region? Um, I think my interest in the international relations of the region started really early when I was doing my undergraduate at Cairo University. And um, I remember at the time I got really fascinated by IR theories and um, I started reading more about the theories and I got even more and more interested in questions of threats and alliances from the very early days. And I remember as an undergraduate student, Um, It was happening at the time where um, the Lebanon War of 2006 took place. Right. And living in Egypt at the time, um, it was very puzzling for me, but also for many people, um, to see on the news during the 33-day war how Hezbollah was always portrayed as a major threat to Egypt. And... um, I got really interested into that kind of puzzle, how Egypt, a very strong state, as was always taught to us in the schools, would be threatened by such a non-state actor which is far away from its borders. And that got me really thinking into how to adapt IR theories, how to study these questions of threats and alliances in the context of the Middle East. And that's how it started mainly. And that's afterwards I decided to do a master's in international relations. And I got more and more interested over time how IR and IR theory can help us explain many of these puzzles in the region. Interesting. I think you must be one of the the very few undergraduate students who really enjoy and get to grips with IR theory. I think you're a rare breed in that sense. Yeah, I think I think it was a bit odd uh, for many of my colleagues, uh, but I was really uh, fascinated by one of the um, French scholars at Sciences Po Bordeaux, Dario Battistella, and he became afterwards my master supervisor when I read his handbook of Introduction to International Relations, and that's where it all started, really. Interesting. Can I ask, May, briefly, uh, I know you've, you've been engaged in, in discussions with Basel Salouk and Morten Valbjorn about this, but can you just tell us a little bit about the type of IR theory that you were taught in Cairo, please? So I remember in Cairo we had, um, we had introduction to IR, 
we had a module on farm policy analysis and um, I was studying in the French section in uh, the political science department at Cairo University. So if you're a little bit familiar with um, the, the Cairo University and some of the educational system in Egypt, you would know that there is three types of um, kind of education at the university. One that's in Arabic and one that it's in English and one it's in French. And the three kind of more or less reflect the social divides and the social class in Egypt. So you had more the Arabic, which is the public kind of departments that are usually uh, with very low fees. And then the people who have more money, they come from private schools, they can study in English language uh, departments, and then the French section who have been in French schools initially. So I was more in the French section, and I was taught IR in French, not in English at the very beginning. And... um, the content of the module was mainly the IR from the French school. So we would study Raymond Aron, the sociology of international relations, and the classical realists, mainly. Interesting. <laughs> I was only okay. introduced to constructivism during my master's. So it was a very, um, very specific type of um, of module that I was taught in international relations at the time, as far as I remember. Right. That's, that's really interesting to hear, um, that, that there was no constructivism, but an emphasis on, on classical realism rather than perhaps the more traditional neorealism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, again, you know, I think it was uh, probably the fact that I was in the French section. Yeah had an influence. So I would imagine my colleagues who were in the English section, they were more taught the American social science and the American IR more. Um, And again, those who are in the Arabic section, they also must have studied the text, which were only translated in Arabic. So not all the IR text as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I look forward to hearing more about the the project that you've been involved with, with Basel and, and Morton in due course. But yeah. let's let's go to your PhD, May. Tell us a bit about about the decision to go where you ended up going. Why there and, and why the topic that, that you ultimately ended up studying? Mm. So again, I think it was really during the Lebanon War 2006 that I was really interested in threats. And then I did my master's in France And um, I even fell more in love with international relations. And the advice that I got there afterwards is that if I wanted to continue in academia, I would have to make the decision to go to the Anglo-Saxon part of the world, start more writing in English, publishing in English. Um, So after finishing my master's at Sciences Po Bordeaux, I started applying for universities in the UK. And I was very lucky at the time to um, to secure a place at the University of Edinburgh. And I continued to study threats and alliances. I was still kind of puzzled by the different alliance choices many of the Arab states were making in 2006, in 2009. Uh, but I got also more and more um, fascinated as I started reading into more historical cases to find out that puzzling alliance decisions were not just recent, but they have been, let's say, um, 
a constant component of international relationship in the Middle East. Hmm. Interesting. So this this decision to go to Edinburgh then, I can certainly understand why, but who did you end up working with there? So there I was very lucky to have Adham Saouli as a supervisor, primary supervisor. Adham was mainly working on questions of IR in the Middle East, uh, state building in the Middle East. At the time he was at the University of Edinburgh, now he moved to the University of St. Andrews. And the other supervisor that I was working with was Julie Carbo. And uh, Julie's not expert on the Middle East, she's rather a scholar of foreign policy analysis. And um, I was very lucky to have that kind of mix between someone who's doing IR but also expert on the region and another supervisor who had basically very little expertise in the Middle East but more expertise in IR theory and foreign policy analysis. And in that sense, it was the perfect kind of supervision because they both complemented each other. I can certainly see how that would work work quite nicely, and I guess the the product of this was was obviously getting the PhD, but but ultimately the book that's come out recently. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, if um, if you go through the book, there's uh, IR theory as much as Middle East knowledge in it because exactly, it was yeah. always this kind of fascination. Um, from my side, but also encouragement from my supervisors that I have to engage with both. Well, I've, I've just finished going through it, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I've recommended it to, to a lot of my PhD students and Thank you. Um, and also to, to folks on Twitter, because I think it's it's excellent. It bridges the the division of, of IR theory and Middle Eastern area studies really nicely, which doesn't always happen. So... Maybe we can spend a bit of time talking about the book and then then go on to some of the other things that you've done, May, if that's okay. Sure, yeah. yeah. So the the book is obviously focused on on threats and alliances. And I think it's this this really interesting combination of, of theoretical approaches, of case studies, of disciplines. But why don't you why don't you start by telling us just a little bit about what you sought to do in the book. I mean, what's what's the main claim or contribution at stake here? So, uh, very briefly, uh, it's probably easier for me to start with the empirical puzzle that was the main driver of the whole uh, book. Um, So, looking at several alliances in the region, it's very easy to detect that sometimes it seems the identity was predominant in the alliance decision and in some other cases the alliances were merely driven by rational material factors and um, looking at the literature it's also very easy to detect that the literature is divided along these lines that some of the literature coming from the realist tradition mainly neorealism they emphasize the role of material factors in driving threats and alliances and on the other hand the constructivist approach that says well identity and the construction of identity has the most important role in shaping perceptions of threats and To an extent, many puzzles in the Middle East kind of put both approaches into some sort of dilemma. 
because we find cases where sometimes identity is playing out and other cases material factors is playing are playing out so it's kind of impossible to dismiss one or the other or actually give the priority for one over the other. And the book starts with the empirical puzzle of the alliances during the Iran-Iraq war from 1980 to 1988. And that's one of the longest war in modern history where Iran and Iraq were basically engaged in this war. But at the same time, most of the regional states, they kind of made the decision to ally with either Iraq or Iran. And the two cases that I focus on are Saudi Arabia and Syria. And looking at both countries at the very um, at the very same time before the war, both states were facing more or less the same dilemmas. Saddam Hussein's ambitions are increasing, the military power of Iraq is increasing, and um, he was constituting more or less a potential threat on the long term. On the other hand, the Iranian revolution changed the identity of Iran in the region and kind of made it a threat to other states and other regimes in the region. And both Syria and Saudi Arabia were kind of threatened by the Islamic revolution and its message, and they were also threatened by the rise of power from Saddam Hussein. Nevertheless, they both perceived the most important threat at that time very differently, and accordingly, they made completely different alliance choices. Saudi Arabia perceived the message coming from the Iranian revolution as more important and more threatening, and they decided to support Saddam Hussein. Syria, on the other hand, and even despite sharing the Ba'athist ideology with Saddam Hussein, they saw Saddam Hussein as the real threat, and they decided to support Iran against Iraq. So here, I mean, this is just one case among other cases where we see two states facing more or less the same structural conditions, the same threats, but they decide completely different because in one case, identity played the most important role. And in another case, Syria, for example, made the decision of alliance based on material factors. And the divide in the literature and IR between neorealism and constructivism does not really help us to take into account both cases. So neorealism has been always used to explain the Syrian alliance decision, but it doesn't explain the Saudi one. And the constructivist approach has been used to account for the Saudi alliance decision, but not the Syrian one. Yeah. And there it becomes a problem because we don't don't really have a way of understanding this dilemma from a comprehensive point of view, because both cases included elements of identity and included elements of material power. And that's mainly what the book is trying to address. And that's the puzzle that it's trying to solve, how to take into account that sometimes identity is playing an important role. And in other cases, the material factors are predominant in the alliance decision. And the book is presenting this kind of um, eclectic framework that combines elements from neorealism and elements from ontological security that has sociological um, 
grounding uh, in IR and provide some conditions for when we have one case and when we have the other case. Fantastic. Mate, before we go into the, the ontological security, which I found fascinating and, and want to go into a bit more detail, can you just tell us a little bit about your, your case study justification, both in terms of the Saudi and Syrian choices, but also the Iran-Iraq war, the 2006 war, and the, the 2009 um, Israeli incursion, please? Yeah. So the book has uh, three case studies and uh, two countries across so I'm looking at comparing both Saudi and Syrian alliance decisions during three major wars in the region, which are the Iran-Iraq War from 1980 to 1988, and the Lebanon War 2006, and the Gaza War of 2009. And um, the case selection has been mainly based on... Um, looking at the variations across the cases. And I picked the cases of Saudi Arabia and Syria based on uh, the fact that these were two extreme cases in uh, diverging over identity and power. So if we look at other states in the region, we constantly find sometimes identity is coming as more important, or in other cases, the material power is more important. But Syria was an extreme case where rational um, approaches were constantly explaining its alliance decision, and most of its alliance decisions were driven by material interest. And Saudi Arabia was the other extreme, where identity has been extremely present in its alliance decisions. So these were the two extreme cases that I looked at in the region um, that constantly either looked or either portrayed identity as more important or material power as more important. And then I looked at the wars in the region, and there were several examples of wars in the region, and I started looking at the wars where both states played a role and where the alliance decision has been particularly important um, in showing this kind of dynamic. Um, the war, I made a conscious decision of excluding the Kuwait War of 1991, which could have constituted another case study mm. for the fact that the Syrian alliance in 1991 during the Kuwait War with the U.S. campaign at the time was not necessarily motivated by threat perception. It was rather motivated by profits. And it falls under a completely different type of alliances. Um, so from that perspective, it did not really fit the criteria that I was looking at how threat and threat perception in particular motivating alliance decisions. Uh, and therefore, I had to drop this case. But nevertheless, it could be a very interesting case for future studies about looking, for example, at the Saudi case and how the Saudi alliance decision at the time was very motivated by physical insecurity from the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait at the time. Sure. And to an extent, the book provides these, this kind of comparison between the two cases, but also across time to see how the Saudi identity has developed over time, how the Syrian identity developed over time, but also how these alliance decisions led, in some cases, to development and change in identity or the other way around, how the identity changed the interpretation of 
the material interest. So also looking at the development of the Saudi identity across cases is very important. Looking at the Syrian identity across these three wars is also very important. Yeah. I mean, what I, I particularly enjoyed was in the opening sections in particular, there was this, this grounding in both IR theory and, and Middle Eastern IR and efforts to understand what's going on. And, and you did a really good job of, of, of I guess, segregating the, the various camps that either reduce everything to power or everything to identity and, and outline both the deficiencies in terms of Middle East approaches and also in terms of, of IR theory. And I thought you, you did a really good job of, of bringing out your interest in IR theory alongside the interest in the more empirically driven IR approaches in, in application, I guess. But can yeah. you just, can you elaborate a bit on how, how you try and, and manage this, this tension between the two? There's, there's been a, a real cause for concern for, for scholars in both IR theory and um, Middle Eastern IR. This sense of reconciling material power with ide- ideational um, power and threats and challenges. So, how do you how do you bridge the gap, essentially? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think this has been um, a challenge that every scholar in IR of the Middle East have been trying to address at some point. Even if they didn't really address it directly, they have been always challenged how to deal with this problem uh, in their own work, is to what extent we include IR theory, which has been um, an American discipline uh, that has been developed based on Western history and to what extent it fits the context of the Middle East and whether we can import theories and we can just apply them to the region without necessarily taking into account the particularities of the region. And I think many of the scholars came to um, the position recently, and this developed over the decades, um, that despite the fact that IR theories are universal theories and they don't take into account particularities of different regions, we can't just dismiss them. And at the same time, we cannot just dismiss the particularities of each region. And the best way it's always to achieve um, a position where you benefit from both. You benefit from the abstraction that IR theory provides to navigate very complex realities, and at the same time, taking into account the particularities which might enrich IR theory over time. And to an extent, that's what I've been trying to do in this book, really looking at threat perception in the region, taking mainstream IR approaches very seriously without dismissing them, but really looking at how we could use them in order to explain and understand some of the phenomena that we're dealing with in Middle East IR. But also looking at Middle East IR and the empirical knowledge and the richness of the cases and asking the question backward, how does these cases help us draw lessons, develop IR theory, and provide new theoretical innovation that could be used not just in the Middle East, but beyond the region as well. And that's, I think that's many of my colleagues and scholars who are working on different issues, they, they've come to, to appreciate both sides without dismissing any of them. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you on that. 
but what I think you do particularly well is is bring out some of these these lessons, and you do it through the the lens of, of what you call ontological security, which which I, I really liked as a concept and a, a a tool through which to to balance these these different challenges. So for people not familiar with it, can you say a little bit about what what ontological security is, please, and how you think it it bridges the the tensions between the realist and the constructivist? Yeah, so I think ontological security is an emerging concept in international relations. It has been developed um, a few decades ago in psychology in particular, and um, scholars in sociology as well started looking at some aspects of it. And very, um, very basically, the ontological security, it's about the security of the self, of the identity, that Anthony Giddens looked at the individuals and said, as any individual um, interacting at the social level, uh, they maintain a certain identity. And this identity is often uh, related to routines, related to relationship with others in a society, related to a certain narrative of how this individual wants to define themselves and how they want to be recognized in their own society. So looking at a doctor, for example, he sees himself as a doctor and he defines himself as a doctor and other recognize him as such. Um, and he maintains that kind of ontological security through the everyday practices, through practicing the job, um, being recognized by others that way. And to an extent, the ontological security talks about this kind of identity as a security and it might be threatened and these kind of threats might emerge from what is called like critical situation, that something happens that the individual feels like he's in a crisis. And these critical situations might be internal or external, that something changing breaks the routines. And the individual comes to realize, well, you know, my identity is not working anymore. I need to find a new identity. So the doctor might be facing an ethical question in his job, in his everyday job, and therefore that might lead him to question his whole identity and probably try to find a new identity to find this kind of internal peace or the ontological security, his security of being. And many scholars were interested in this idea and they said, well, we could actually talk about ontological security of states. If we talk about the same concept at the state level, it can also work. States have a certain identity, they are part of a social system, they want to be defined, they seek to be recognized in a certain way, and this identity or the security of this identity might be challenged by internal or external crises. And many scholars, when they looked more closely, they realized that states can even sacrifice the physical security for the sake of maintaining ontological security. Many of the states went to war, for example, because they want to preserve the identity or they want to preserve a certain image. At the end of, um, let's say, while the British Empire was kind of falling apart and it was the end of the British hegemony in the international system, there was the crisis of the Falkland Wars. And many analyses of this war, it was mainly about how Britain 
entered and took the decision to go to war at that point just to protect its identity and the security of its being as a great power. And there are many more examples where scholars realize that many of the decisions were not driven necessarily by physical security. They might be driven by the fact that states want to preserve a certain identity. Hmm. And therefore, I found that ontological security, in a way, is a very useful concept because it takes into account and captures many aspects of identity that constructivism did not necessarily delve into, like the stability of the identity, the continuity of certain routines around the identity, the clarity of the identity, and all of that. And by looking at several phenomena in the Middle East, we realized that in many cases, identity as such is a very, very big term, and we need to look more closely into the practices surrounding identity to understand more how identity is shaping international relations. Yeah, it's certainly a convincing thesis. I wonder, May, can you just put a little flesh on the bone, if you will, just perhaps relating to the 2006 war, given that 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 had such a, a serious impact on your, your interest in, mm-hmm. in IR theory. Perhaps you could just you say a little bit about that with regard to the ontological security for, for say, Saudi Arabia, please. Yeah, sure. Uh, so in 2006, as we all know, uh, Israel attacked Lebanon and Hezbollah emerged as, let's say, the defender of Lebanon at the time. Hezbollah kind of stood firm during 33 days. And um, the war was uh, paralleled with a very powerful discourse from Hezbollah that they are a force of resistance in the Arab region, fighting Israel, and they are having this kind of Islamic identity as well. And um, Saudi Arabia, which has been a kingdom priding itself for uh, being the custodian of the two holy mosques, um, having an Islamic identity, probably one of the very few states in the world that has Sharia as a constitution, um, logically speaking, we would have assumed that Saudi Arabia would find another group in the region that has an Islamic identity as well to be a natural ally. But it wasn't really the case. Hezbollah was a non-state actor who had no interest in fighting other states except that Israel and just trying to protect the borders of Lebanon became portrayed as a major threat to Saudi Arabia. So there was no physical threat here to the kingdom. It was rather more a threat to its identity. Uh, So Saudi Arabia positions itself as the main leader of Sunni Islam in the world and the legitimate leader of Islam in general. And having another actor in the region that emerges, having more or less... um, a discourse that's saying, well, we are also an Islamic actor, but we're offering a different perspective and a different foreign policy conduct compared to the Saudi kingdom, seem to threaten this being or the security of being for the Saudis. And therefore, 
it emerged as a threat and in response for Saudi Arabia to kind of restore its ontological security and restore its stability and the stability in its identity, they had to narrow down the identity discourse, but also they started differentiating themselves. How we are different from Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a Shiite kind of group and we are Sunnis. And here sectarianism was some sort of mechanism uh, used by the kingdom in order to restore its distinct identity and its distinct being in the region. And based on that, Hezbollah was a constant threat, not because of its physical threat to the kingdom, but rather for being this kind of disruptor of its ontological security. Fantastic. Thank you for for enlightening us with, with that. I think it's it's so useful as a means of, of bringing together these different components of, of threats and the, the driving the driving aspects and issues that that provoke particular states and actors to behave in certain ways. I think it's such a useful tool. And I look forward to, to you and others exploring the the ways in which this can be applied to explore other factors. But mate, can you um, can you just give us a brief synopsis of the the main conclusion of the book then i mean what's the main takeaway you you talk at certain points about if certain conditions emerge then a particular state will act in certain ways mm-hmm. so can you just elaborate on that point please yeah so the book is trying to understand more how you know how we got to the situation where sometimes material is more important or identity is more important than shaping threat perception and very briefly the book is saying well in every situation of threat perception um there is always the material and there is always the ideational so they're both present um And states are constantly faced by multiple threats. They could be threats to its physical security or to its uh, ideational slash ontological security. And if the threat is coming to the identity, and the identity is more or less very rigid, and there is no mechanism to adapt, then the threat becomes really important. And the states usually have to sacrifice their physical security in order to protect their ontological security. And the other situation, usually if the identity is fluid, states can actually switch from one narrative to the other much more easily than a rigid identity, then at that time they would just focus on threats to their material interest, which are more important at the time. So the book is giving, you know, this kind of two spheres of security, one that's ideational and one that's material. And by saying sometimes one becomes more important in states' responses to threats, depending on the fluidity of the identity, to what extent the identity is fluid and providing leader with instruments and opportunities, and also on the constraints and the pressures and the clarity of the relative power distribution that comes to shape as well how states see material threats. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much for, for shedding light on that. I, I love the book. I think it's so very important and it, it helped me to work through some of the stuff that I'm thinking through for the, for the book that I'm working on at present. So, so for me personally, thank you. Uh, it's been incredibly useful, but it's also been just a fascinating read to go through things. Mate, we've not really had time to discuss anything else, but, um, one very quick final question, if I may. Uh, would you like to say anything about your role with the Arab Political Science Network while we've got you on the line? Yeah, of course. So the Arab Political Science Network, it's an initiative that um, I've been working with, with many colleagues of mine, um, that we're mainly trying to build this network that would allow Arab scholars from different parts of the Arab world to get to know each other, get connected, but also trying to bridge the divide between Western scholarship on the Arab world and the scholarship coming from the Arab world as well. And we try to do that through several activities during the year. We have like a research development workshop where we invite scholars based in the Arab world to present their work and get more feedback. And we also invite scholars who are based in Europe and in the U.S. in order to interact with them. And we have a teaching workshop as well every year that talks more about how we teach political science in different parts of the Arab world. How do we improve our teaching? How do we create some open access resource that would help anyone teaching the topic in the region as well? And at the same time, we have several travel grounds for people located and resident in the Arab world to be able to travel to conferences, present their work. And we have some grants as well for panels um, in major conferences uh, as well in political science. Fantastic. And how would someone get involved in this then? So we have our website and uh, through the website there are usually very um, periodic calls about the different opportunities that we have. Also, people can sign up on our newsletter and they will get all the calls and all the news of the activities that we're doing. But also, if anyone is interested in conducting uh, something that would more or less relate to our goals and our agenda, please, they should just email us and we're open to many new ideas and projects, of course, across the region. What email address should they use, May? Uh, the info at Arab psn.org. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for your time today, May. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've really Thanks. enjoyed getting to grips with the, the book in a, in a different way to me sitting down and reading it, which I also enjoyed. Uh, <laughs> so thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it, May. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Until Thanks. next time.